0: Tonight's scripture reading is in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. In the summer of 1987, Sandy and I had just arrived in town and were involved with a team planning a church. And so one of the things we did was when uh, went out into a number of Knoxville neighborhoods and knocked on doors. And we asked uh, two questions, if I remember. One was, uh, are, are, are you a, a part of a church? Are you... A actively involved in a church? And if not, uh, why not? And we use that as uh, some research to help us as we were preparing to launch into a church plan. And I I wish I'd kept the survey data. Uh, I didn't. It certainly wasn't scientific. But to the best of my recollection, about 90% uh, said that they were uh, a part of a church, and about 70% said that they uh, were active members, that they worshipped regularly to some degree. Last year, uh, several churches in Knoxville conducted a similar poll, and they found that 18% of Knoxvilleans are involved in a local church. Um, America, if it ever was a Christian nation, is not one anymore, and even Christian uh, or southern cities like ours, are increasingly becoming post-Christian, which raises an important question of how do we live faithfully in a non-Christian society? And uh, there are a couple of different answers to that question that Christians have wrestled with over the years. The two main ones are kind of, or at least the two poles, one would be that you withdraw. And there's a book out right now called The Benedict Option that is getting a lot of Press by, I don't know if I'll pronounce his last name, but Rod Dreher. And he essentially says this book was in the monastery, which is a Benedictine monastery, and so I skimmed it while I was out there. I didn't want to pay the 25 bucks. He says, hey, Christians, wake up. The culture war is over. We lost. The Dark Ages are coming. Let's follow the model of the 6th century monk, St. Benedict, who set up separate religious communities as the Roman Empire collapsed around them. We should pull out of society to purify and preserve our faith. We should withdraw from mainstream culture. We should put down roots in separate communities, much like the Orthodox Jews do. So that would be one approach to the question of how do you live faithfully in a non-Christian culture? Uh, You pull out and you create, as it were, a ghetto where you can kind of hold on to your traditions. The other extreme, the other model might be called uh, accommodating And essentially, that would be the kind of Christian that frankly doesn't really see much tension between the culture's values and the church's values. They're pretty optimistic about the way things are going and and, uh, the way that they kind of live out their faith is really not very different from uh, the culture around it. So those would be kind of two extremes, withdraw or accommodate. Peter offers a middle way. And this book really is... Uh, a letter to Christians who are trying to live faithfully in a non-Christian culture that offers a middle way between withdraw and accommodate. And tonight, we'll, we'll just look at the introduction where he begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, later we'll, we'll see that Peter is writing, he says, from Babylon, which was code language for Rome. If you put the pieces together, it's about 70 AD. Paul has been martyred. Peter will soon be martyred. He is an older man now. And yet he's become the leading apostle of the church. And he wants to send a letter to all the struggling churches who were planted on one of the missionary journeys, the one that went into Turkey, and encourage them and let them know that they're part of the broader family of God and not for God. But one of the things I want to point out tonight is how shocking, if, if, if you were a first century Christian and you knew the gospel story, the fact that Peter is a leader in the church would have been astounding because Peter would have been voted least likely to succeed in his seminary class. Of all the things that you can do bad, Promising the Lord you'll be with him until death and then running away, it's got to be in the top of the list. Peter was an utter and total failure as a Christian. Think of the worst thing you could do as a Christian. I mean, he did worse. Just flat out denied the Lord. The Lord meets him after the resurrection on the shores of their beloved Galilee and heals him, and sends him back into the battle. I think that is something we just need to note here. One of the, one of the things that I do when I go out into the desert, there's a lot of time to read. Uh, I, I typically will get up for vespers, which is at 5.30, then there's a mass at 6. I'll have breakfast, which is silent, and then I'm back in my cell by 7, and I go to bed at 8 or 8.30. So I have 13, 14 hours just to pray and be with the Lord. Sometimes I'll go back and you know, eat and stuff. And so one of the things that I do is I pray all year about what books I'm going to read when I'm out there. And uh, this year I bought a book that that um, uh, by Brene Brown's most recent book called Rising Strong. And it's about how you respond to failure, how you respond to, to falling, to, to messing up. Um, and one of the stories she tells is that uh, she she had an interesting meeting with the Pixar people. And one of the things they talked about was how you tell stories. And there's this big plaque, evidently, or whiteboard at Pixar that talks about the three acts of every Pixar story. Act one, hero leaves home. Act two, she runs into trouble, tries everything and can't find her way out. Act three she finds, usually with the help of a friend, a new strength, a new power, a new way to solve the problem, and moves forward to ultimately bring joy and redemption to the people around her. And when you think about every Disney, <laughs> every Disney movie and every Pixar movie, that's kind of the, the, the story. And as Sandy Greek told me earlier, that goes all the way back to, to the Greeks and And that's a way to think about your whole life. It's also a way to think about little episodes of your life, right? Well, I uh, did a little exercise that the book encouraged me to do. And I I took an afternoon and I tried to write my life into three acts and try to identify a plot summary of each act. I'll come back to that in a moment. But, But one of the things that I want to point out to you is that Peter's life should have been over at the second act. We never should have heard of Peter. Because, I mean, he really messed up. And one of the great lies, I think, that the enemy gives us is that you are stuck in act two. There's no act three for you. I mean, it'd be like going to the Lord of the Rings trilogy and kind of ending after the second one, which was tempting to do because they were so bad compared to the books. But you know, you get the idea that, that you get in and you're right at the point where the doom of Mordor is descending and, and there's absolutely no hope and Frodo and Bilbo are having that teary-eyed moment and Gollum is gloating and, and then you decide, okay, cool, you go, go home. one of the beautiful hope of the gospel is that there is an act three. The fact that Peter wrote this, there's an act three. We're not done when we fail. And as just an aside. I I would, I would put it like this. You're not really even ready to start until you fail. (laughs) That's act three is where you get the good stuff. So don't, don't give up. Well, He addresses his letter to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion. One of the things that we'll see in this wonderful book is Peter is writing to Gentiles, But he uses a lot of language from the Old Testament. He's bringing them into the broader story of Israel. And you remember election, or the word means to choose. It's a big part of the whole story of Israel. Genesis 12, how does God save the world? He chooses Abraham and Sarah, forms a people from them, sends them out to bless the world. So by calling them the elect or the chosen, he's reminding them, One, you're part of this bigger story. And two, you didn't have anything to do with it. That's such an important spiritual principle. You have nothing to contribute to your own salvation. He chose you. And then he calls them exiles of the dispersion. That's kind of a peculiar phrase, but it kind of summarizes his whole approach in the book. Uh, if you have a different translation, your Bible might say sojourners or strangers or aliens or pilgrims. One modern translation I read this week has immigrants without paperwork. How about that? Refugees without papers. I think that would be a way to translate it. And the idea of the dispersion, thats he's referring to the, the diaspora, uh, that time when the uh, Israel fell and the Jews were scattered across the whole world and they no longer had a homeland and they faced these challenges in trying to live faithfully in a foreign land. And, and Peter's saying, hey, uh, I understand that you all are like refugees without papers in a foreign land that doesn't want you. That's your identity. So what does that tell us about how we relate to this culture that we're in. Well, on the one hand, that beloved verse we have at All Souls, Jeremiah 29, addresses this. The Jews are in Babylon. They don't want to be there. They're scattered. They're exiles of the diaspora. And uh, Jeremiah says, here's what you're going to do. You are going to seek to bless this community. You don't live here. They're not very nice to you. You're going to love it and bless it. I have a friend who's uh, from the Middle East, and I was asking him about his experience as an immigrant, as a, as a refugee. And he said, when I moved to America, I had an uncle tell me, don't be an, a hyphenated American. He says, you're not a Lebanese American, an Arab American, an Iraqi American. You're just an American. And be all in. If you're going to go to America, be all in. And this brother has been all-in in in our community for a lot of years, seeking to bless it. But on on the other hand, so on the one hand, we're immigrants who love our country that we're in. On the other hand, we know it's not ultimately our home. And and, and this is kind of tricky to to tease out, but but let's just take a minute to do it. Here's a a letter from the 2nd century. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And here's how the early Christians understood being in exile. Christians reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home. Every home is a foreign land. They spend their days on earth, but they hold citizenship in heaven. Now, if we take this seriously, we may have to rethink our position in our society. For much of America's history, Christians had a kind of home court advantage. It was helpful to be a Christian in most parts of America. Being a Christian helped you get ahead. It helped you make social context. It was good for business. And there was some kind of a rough surface correlation between Christian values and, and American values. But we are now moving into a period when our experience will be more like that of the early church, when we've lost the home court advantage, when we are like immigrants without papers. And that is a fundamentally different way of thinking about being a Christian. Um, Imagine tonight that there, let's say it's in uh, Loudoun. I imagine tonight that there's a community of refugees from Latin American countries, say, gathering together. What do they feel like? They don't have papers. What's it like to be a part of that community? A few miles down the road, there's an enormous church with wonderful people doing great things and a lot of powerful leaders and a lot of money and resources, and it's just profound. First Peter suggests that that's not the model <laughs> where we're going. <laughs> the model is more that little group of refugees where maybe maybe they're kind of afraid, kind of lonely, kind of holding together because they don't know what's coming. That's, I think what it means to be a Christian in a post-Christian society. You know, I, I, was, I was driving one night. It was just a beautiful night. You know, I, 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 After 30 years here, I can't imagine anywhere in the world I'd rather live. It's just gorgeous. Today was so gorgeous. And yet I often have this sense, I wonder if you do, I just don't fit. I remember saying this to Sandy one night. We, you know, like everybody, you go through different transitions in your life and your relational patterns shift and your maybe your vision shifts, your theology shifts, whatever, and, and you kind of move from this group to that group. And I remember, I remember one night just having this profound sense that I don't really fit anywhere. Well, I think what the Bible says, if you feel that way, is It's because you don't. As beautiful as East Tennessee is, it's not ultimately our final destination. Well, the letter's going to Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, five territories of what we call Turkey, Later we find out that a young man named Silvanus carried the letter. He would have sailed uh, down the Black Sea to a port on the Baltic, and then he would have made this loop. He would have gathered the Christians together in these regions and read them the letter. Um, Then what he does is he reminds his readers of who they are Because this may be the key to living as an immigrant without papers. is just remembering your identity, who you are, what God has done. And he uses this beautiful little Trinitarian way of describing it. And just in that, we already know that one of the wonderful things of being Christian is that we're swept up into the mystery of the triune God. He says, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's a Greek word in the New Testament that has this idea of someone has chosen you before the dawn of eternity for the sake of blessing. It's a loving word. It's a father's word. It's that someone has picked you out and brought you to himself. So a Christian is someone who believes that he is invited into a great adventure, a love story filled with meaning and purpose and richness. You know, a lot of people in our society don't believe that. You know, as as Kate prayed, we lost two teenagers Farragut. Uh, I personally know of five teenage suicides this school year. They don't make the paper, so if I know that, how many more uh, are out there? And you're probably hearing about the, the controversy about the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. And it's a, it's a show about how hard it is to live with Hope In a world without a story, it's about Hannah Baker, a high school girl who commits suicide. and She leaves behind tapes um, that reveal the 13 c- reasons why she decided to kill herself. And it's become pretty controversial. Some say it glorifies suicide. Others are pointing out that there's a good conversation about suicide that's coming out of it, about mental health care and, and treatment and things like that and gun control and all that. I think that's very helpful, but there is a deeper problem that goes beneath how school officials handle teen depression, and, and that is it's hard to find meaning and hope if you have no story. You can medicate it. Um, you can numb it. But I don't know how you really solve that problem. So one of the things I think that we're saying is, uh, Peter's trying to say, is that we have a loving father who has chosen us to be a part of a story. Now, the next thing that we learn is that we are sanctified By the Holy Spirit. So the Father chooses us, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. It's a word that means to make holy, to make like God, to help us obey Christ. If we were using other language, we might, more contemporary language, we might say, uh, helps us to become whole, helps us to flourish. Um, Let's go back to the three acts. So one of the things that I, that I realized when I was working on this out in the desert, you know, act one, hero leaves home. Act two, hero can't solve the problem. Act three, hero moves on, usually with a friend, figures out a solution, moves towards redemption and joy and hope. Well, one of the things that I realized is I was trying to write a plot summary of the three acts was that I wasn't as far into the third act as I thought that I was. And when I started to parse it out and write it out, I realized that I still have some thought patterns, some buried beliefs, some hidden ways of reacting that are not of God and their second act Issues. And one of them is shame, the belief that my identity and worth is related to my performance. And I think I told you jokingly a couple months ago that I've been reading a lot about shame lately because I wanted to help you as we have conversations. And lo and behold, I find that this is something that I still. Uh, wrestle with and even though it makes me sick to my stomach it's still there and so one of the things that's uh, wonderful to be able to do when you're on a journey like this and you are sitting in your cell at 7 in the morning and you don't have anything to do other than eat and go to bed you can just sit with this stuff and I did I'm glad I didn't do it for two weeks. (laughs) That one week was long enough. And I started to parse out the different acts. And I wrote down in my journal that I felt powerless to overcome this struggle with shame. This sense of connecting my identity with my performance. And I brought along a book called Healing the Shame that Binds You by a man named John Bradshaw. It's not a Christian book, but I thought it was a very helpful book. And he approaches shame by encouraging to go through the 12-step model of recovery that we normally associate with addiction. And so one afternoon, I went through the 12 steps myself, and I plan on returning to that. And here are some of the steps that just struck me. The first one: I admit I am powerless. I be- believe God can restore me. I humbly ask God to remove my shortcomings. I will improve my conscious connection with God, praying to know His will and to have the power to live it out. See what's and for some reason I didn't realize it, but a lot of, I bought. 11 books, I read them all. Um, <laughs> um, I skimmed a few of them, but um, a lot of them had to do with recovery literature, which is not literature I'm real familiar with, but one of the beautiful things about people in recovery is they understand 1 Peter 1-2. I am powerless to overcome my shame. I'm powerless. And I know that sounds obvious, but sitting there in my little cell with my journal writing out, I am powerless to overcome shame, was very powerful for me. And I think one of the things Peter is saying here is, right from the very beginning, you need to remember, this is not about self-help. This is about spirit help. And I wonder if there's an area in your life tonight where you've not yet quite acknowledged that you are powerless to overcome it. Now, one of the things we'll get into later in this book is that all of the pronouns here are plural, so... Peter understands that you've got to work all of this out in community. and I hope that you have some relationships or can find some relationships where you can share where you feel powerless. I think that's part of how we overcome it. And the last thing that Peter says is that we have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And that means that just as the covenant between God and Israel was sealed by a ritual in which the people were sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice, so the covenant between God and the Christian is sealed by the blood of Jesus. Peter will put it like this a few verses. We are ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Paul will say in Romans, we are made righteous by his blood. John will say in his first letter, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's my prayer for us as we go through this series. That the part of us that feels dirty, that feels flawed, that feels broken, that feels disgraceful, the part of us that we've stuffed way down there, that somehow the Spirit would apply the blood to that stain at the very, very deepest part of who we are. Well, then Peter wraps up with a hopeful prayer. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> That's a great summary of the gospel. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace, the reality that you are loved and accepted in God because of Christ. You can't earn it. You are forgiven. And the peace that flows from that, peace with yourself, peace with your God, peace with your neighbor, may that be multiplied. May your experience of the gospel reality be increased at an existential level. And I asked Trivetta to just come to the mic and pray that over us now for some reason. I just thought of her as I was ending up tonight. And then we will uh, we will move to the table.